Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. This episode is all about nostalgia and how we experience it through art. Any art form can have nostalgic effects, but I think there's something unique and specific about music. The way hearing an old song you love transports you back in time to a younger version of yourself when you play that album on repeat and memorize the lyrics. Broadway producer Eva Price has lots of musical nostalgia. She's been drawn to pop music and Broadway musicals forever, and that passion infuses her work with energy and purpose. In the past year, she lead produced two Broadway shows that are deeply nostalgic for audiences. Oklahoma, a classic Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, beloved since 1943, and Jagged Little Pill, a new musical based on Alanis Morissette's eponymous album, that invigorated listeners in 1995 and has stayed popular ever since. Both of these entities carry great expectations for people in the audience. When you come to a production of Oklahoma, you expect crowd-pleasing renditions of Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. And when you come to Jagged Little Pill and you're an Alanis fan, you await the soul-stirring renditions of Hand in My Pocket and You Ought to Know. But here's the thing. Eva's not going to give you exactly what you expect. One of her skills as a producer is developing shows that disrupt nostalgia. These productions of Oklahoma and Jagged Little Pill, which are directed by Daniel Fish and Diane Paulus, respectively, take our memories of those songs and stories and refuse to let them stay in the past. These are productions that are wholeheartedly about today. How does Eva and her creative team guide audiences toward a present-day understanding using songs they thought were nostalgic? And how does she convince investors that the way to honor nostalgic work is to dust it off and make it new? We'll discuss all of that and more in this episode. Here's my interview with Eva Price. Hi, Lonnie. How are you? <laughs> nice to see you today. I'm happy to be talking to you with a microphone. It reminds me of my college radio show days. <laughs> that is so apropos of our deep dive into the past today. So I want to begin by saying about a week and a half ago, I went to see Jagged Little Pill. And I really want to talk to you about the first 30 seconds. Yeah, I love the first 30 seconds. The opening notes are the same, nearly identical to the opening notes of Alanis Morissette's album, Jagged Little Pill. It's that piercing blend of harmonica and guitar that just feels so like an mm. instant time machine mm. to, to certainly to my adolescence. And suddenly this gorgeous cast is on stage and there's one dancer in particular who has long braids and this very like muscular figure. And she dances in a manner that I can only call like the reckless abandoned school of choreography. <laughs> and suddenly I had a visceral craving to be my adolescent self. And instantly later I was thinking like, what? No, I don't. <laughs> um, but I want to talk to you about the time machine that is the first 30 seconds before the story begins. 
what do you think is powerful about nostalgia and what does it do in Jagged Little Pill? Well, I'm going to take it one step back and say that there's actually something powerfully nostalgic in music. And I think you can ask anyone um, a favorite song from when they were a kid. It has meaning. Um, A favorite song from a relationship has meaning. A, a, A song they listen to over and over after a breakup has meaning. And so I, th- I think the fact that our show is rooted in music and rooted in a specific music from a period in time from an artist and the fact that that artist is defined by the sound she created with her voice and with her lyric and with her musicality, I think that all wrapped into one is what makes this this question you're asking about nostalgia and our show even more potent, even more powerful. Um, because what, what is happening at the start of Jag Little Pill, the musical is the idea of bringing people into a new way of telling that story and sharing that album and how else can we do it? But with both specific as well as singular musicality, Mm. um, as well as a visual, um, idea also being theatricalized, which is what you are referencing with Ebony Williams is the mm. name of that dancer who is a genius mm. dancer and mover and performer. Um, and so I think it's the combo platter of all of that visual and oral experience that is tapping into the nostalgia factor that people are feeling at the top of our show and what you certainly felt. And I love that you want to talk about nostalgia and why you're asking about its import. Um, in, in theater and in our show, um, because to me, theater is emotional, theater is visceral, theater is cathartic. And if, if those things are important to the human condition in terms of how you react to art, then so must nostalgia be, because nostalgia is visceral, it is cathartic, mm-hmm. it is emotional. Um, it is the, I don't know what the Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition of nostalgia is. But when I think about that word, I think about a bunch of feelings around a memory. Who was Eva in 1995? Oh, my God. Um, She had a really bad haircut in 1995. (laughs) Um, Was it good at the time? It was bad at the time as well. (laughs) It was a big mistake, that haircut. Um, It was somewhere between um, wanting to express some feelings and thoughts that I had about myself, either being more artistic or more progressive in my look and my feel. Maybe I was actually subliminally (laughs) trying to understand my sexuality. I'm not sure. But it was a a short hair haircut um, that some people who were trying to make me feel good um, said it referenced... um, um, what's her name from Reality Bites? Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder's haircut. Um, but they were just being nice. <laughs> it was actually a bad haircut. <laughs> okay. Um, but beyond that, um, I I was um somewhat artsy, somewhat nerdy, um, very passionate about all the things I did in high school, my extracurricular activities. I think I actually use the phrase extracurricular overachiever in my high school yearbook because I think I was president of like four different very disparate clubs, um, which I think at the time I thought um, I had to be. My theory was, why just be in a club if you could be its president? Mm, foreshadowing. 
<laughs> Apparently so. I thought, well, I'm going to give my all to the club anyway, so I might as well run it. Um, so that was sort of what I was like in 1995. I was listening to a lot of Alanis Morissette and a lot of Broadway show tunes. When a show is nostalgic to audiences because the source material relates to specific memories, what expectations do they come in with? I think audiences come in with expectations of their own memories. Um, I think they want to relive those memories in some way. I think those memories um, provide some sort of idea or foreshadowing for what they're about to face in the theater or in that film or when they read that book, whatever the the piece of art is. Um, and I think that's a good thing because I think when you are selling or marketing art, which is what we have to do on Broadway because we are a commercial business, um, we can't be too smart. We can't be too different. We can't be too... Um, obtuse about what we are. Uh, we have to give a little for audiences to relate to in order to be interested in seeing it, in order to buy a ticket. Um, so I think, I think the more we can rely on people's preconceived notions and memories um, and utilize that in both the content of what we're creating as well as in the advertising we're putting out, the better experience the audience will have, the better experience we as producers will have in terms of being successful. Um, so I, I think it's a hand in glove and it's a real symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. Jagged Little Pill does something really interesting in that the score is mostly comprised of the album Jagged Little Pill with some other Alanis songs woven in, some new songs as well. These are all deeply connected to the experience of being a teenager or a young adult. It's the age Alanis herself was when she wrote the songs. And it's the age that I think almost the entire creative team was when they first heard the songs. So it all has that teenage fervor. Um, and additionally, the majority of the cast, or at least the, the characters they play, are teenagers, young adults. So all signs point to this is music about youthful emotion. But I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the heart of the show is a mother of teenagers. It's, it's a bit of a, of a twist on the expectation. And that is why my nostalgia waned after 30 seconds. I wasn't only in teenage land. So... How did Mary Jane, who is a mother in her 40s, I imagine, who is the mother of two teenage kids, become the nucleus of the show? So um, I'm going to answer that. But I'm going to back up one thing. I think that the youthfulness that you're citing is, um, is, is actually an energy more than it is a specificity of age. Hmm. I think um, that the way the songs are sung and the humans singing them and the writing that Alanis did at 19, 20, 21, and that she still did at 44, 43, because we have new songs in our show that she just wrote, um, speaks to a youthful energy, but not yet, not necessarily specifically only to a youthful demographic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just an important distinction because I think as adults, you know, who are, who are, 
north of 30, um, we can we can respond and appreciate a youthfulness in our pop culture without being of that age. And um, and I think that's a really important point. But sorry, back back to your question, which was so this the show has many storylines. But Mary Jane, I think certainly by the end, um, it feels like slightly more her story. Absolutely. So, you know, Mary Jane is a quintessential Alanis Morissette yeah. song. And, you know, we wanted to tell the story of a family and what is generally at the nucleus of a family, a mother. And if that mother has by chance given birth to a female, then what happens in most families is there's a mother-daughter dynamic. (laughs) And as a daughter to a mother uh, who lived through adolescence and and since, I know a lot about a mother-daughter dynamic. And so it, it was a natural progression. Alance herself is a mother. Diablo Cody is a mother. So the idea of the nucleus Diane of a Paulus. mother. Diane Paulus is a mother to two young, you know, tween and almost teenagers. So I think the idea of a mother story was sort of implicit from the get-go because of the the Mary Jane character, which sort of comes out of Alanis's music and sort of the impulses came out of Alanis's music. Um, so I, I think that's that's how that character was born and how the impulses for that character's journey came. How do you think the show seamlessly guides the viewers into the new territory and the new ideas? Um, some of them are like very specifically today kinds of issues um, like opioid addiction or um, certainly sexual assault, sadly, is not of one particular time. But a reckoning with it, I think, is very now. How do you think the the structure of what Diablo Cody created using the songs as certain um, road um, scaffolding? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like so certain markers along the way, um, seamlessly weave into the newness of the story. Well, I mean, I, I think you have to kind of go back to 1995 and the impulses of Alanis's album to answer that question, because she was always singing about bigger themes and bigger issues in her work. Those lyrics and the stories being told in those songs were maybe not word for word about an assault, but they were born out Mm -hmm. of an assault or they were born out of heartbreak or they were born out of isolation or they were born out of trauma. Right. So, so these issues that are very alive today were always implanted in the music that had been around for 25 years. So add to that, the fact that we're living a contemporary in a contemporary moment where artists have a lot to say and they want to say things that are real. They want to say things that are truthful. They want to reflect on what is happening in America. And, it, you know, and I guess if you also think about it, it's really hard to tell a story right now about today without being aware and feeling very part of the discussions going on in our country that deal with these issues. Um, they, they are no longer just in the headlines or on the news. These are kitchen table conversations. So, you know, as any good writer or creative is, they will make, make up the storyline and they will make up characters, but they will reflect it upon reality. And because deep in Alanis's songs, was always a call to truth. It was sort of obvious 
to the creative team that that's what the story was going to be about and that's what they were going to write and the characters they were going to create were going to be born out of all that. And, you know, I, I don't think it's by accident that a lot of the activism that a lot of artists and, and theater makers feel post 2016, um, is kind of evident in the show. Hmm. Um, you know, it's possible that, uh, that 10 years ago, this too would have been the themes and the, and the storyline and the scaffolding of, of the Alanis Morissette musical. But I think birthing it post, uh, fall 2016, when sort of everything in our country really shifted politically and socially, um, it, it feels sort of perfect that, that this is actually what the show's about. I think the most powerful scene, um, at least in my experience in the show, is um, Mary Jane's song, Uninvited. Um, that one really hit me hard. And it is a song lyrically about sort of rejecting advances. Um, seemingly sexual, but it's some of it is a bit open-ended. And so that certainly pertains to Mary Jane thinking about memories she wants to deal with that she has never quite dealt with. Um, so it's the uninvited um, physical intruder. But I think it's also the uninvited um, thoughts of failure that she's never allowed to penetrate. Yeah. And she's sort of becoming more and more porous and letting all these thoughts in and saying, like, if I don't deal with them, I will truly fall apart. And so this uh, shadow dancer, for people who haven't seen it yet, is, is dressed like her and moves like her, only more elastic and, and sort of rubbery and extreme movements to show the emotions and what is also physically happening to her body. Um, that, to me, was one of the, the most quintessential examples of the show of taking something that is a nostalgic song and putting it so deeply into narrative and so deeply into today. Um, it was just a remarkable moment. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the remarkable genius of Sidi Larby Cherkawi. This is a choreographer who's his first Broadway musical, but he comes from the world of concert dance and music video and ballet and contemporary and understands physical storytelling and understands um, the idea of using choreography to tell stories emotionally and theatrically. Um, and if you think about what is inside of, uh, you know, and that's the genius of Alanis and her lyric, right? Like she, she is actually creating, you're probably right, a story about un uninvited, um, unwanted advances, probably sexually, but that is a metaphor for all the things in life that are unwanted, uninvited advances that we face through addiction or we face through other emotional relationships or we face through hardship. And to be able to tell that story in that moment through that type of theatricality is really exciting and really beautiful. And I think sort of quintessential as to why it's so hard to talk about our show. I'd rather just tell people <laughs> to go see it, <laughs> somehow find a ticket because it's, 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 of a, it's of a level and of a quality that is unlike anything else out there. You know, people always ask me like, oh, what's the show like? What's the choreography like? What's the orchestrations like? And I'm like, oh my God. I mean, some combination of Rent, <laughs> American Idiot, Next to Normal, Dear Van Hansen, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when the, when the scene for Uninvited happened, that's when I had 
sort of a light switch moment sitting in the audience of thinking, I thought this show was about nostalgia and it is not about nostalgia. I, this is disrupting nostalgia. And in thinking about talking to you today <clears throat> and, and looking, about, looking at Jagged Little Pill and Oklahoma, mm. there's such a direct line of connection though the shows are different time periods and totally different forms, they are both disrupting nostalgia. It's like you think you're coming in for the time machine, but nope. Yeah, I, I appreciate you noticing that. Um, that's exactly how I feel, and it's why I'm having um, a very proud moment in my theater producing career because both shows are unapologetic um, and very ambitious and are trying to, I, I've never phrased it like that, but you know, disrupt the expected, um, which I believe in very greatly. Um, I also think what they're both about, which excites me to no end when I, when I make the parallels and I, and I, and I connect the tissue is that they're both about facing the uncomfortable truths of their community. You know, one is doing it very specifically to an outsider who is disrupting the norm at a turning point in that community's existence in Oklahoma right before that territory became a state and sort of all hell broke loose and America took form and one can make whatever conjecture they want to make about whether that was for the best or not. And the other is about a family that is facing the uncomfortable truths at a turning point in each of their lives about who they're going to be and what they're going to become and how the relationships are going to play out and what type of, of son, daughter, husband, wife, American they mm -hmm. will grow to become. Um, and I just think that's really exciting because I think theater as an art form is really alive and it's about this moment for the audience when they're sitting there. I just I just think to be able to create shows and, and produce shows right now that are sort of taking into account that aliveness um, in their um, form um, excites me. Yeah. In Oklahoma, I think my uninvited moment where I had the light switch um, is the portrayal of Judd throughout the whole thing um, because he's a bit um, of like the sort of creepy loner, but you can't quite put your finger on it. And you're not quite sure what to make of him. Maybe he's not the kind of guy a girl would like jump to go to the dance with, but there's nothing quite distinctly wrong either. And at the end, Judd dies, and that's not a spoiler because everyone, I think, and that's like been 60, 70 years. Um, 76, um, to be exact. Uh, in that moment, there, he, Judd sort of steps forward and Curly, can I say that? Sure. Um, <laughs> Curly kills him. <laughs> and I thought that was the perception of a threat that didn't necessarily exist, which literally is the stand your ground law that exists in Florida and many other states where um, the perception of threat can be treated as, as legally permissible to act in whatever kind of quote unquote, like retaliating way um, violently um, and be legally exempt. Um, and so I thought, I can't believe I'm watching Oklahoma and I'm thinking about Trayvon Martin. And I'm thinking about so many contemporary things um, while they're in their cowboy attire. That was the point. 
that was absolutely the point. I'm glad. I'm glad you saw that and thought that. Um, yeah, th- you know the the sort of. I mean, the characterization of Judd is one of my favorite things in that musical. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you sort of. I personally find empathy. I find empathy for him most of the night. I think, what is so wrong with this guy? I feel bad that he lives where he lives. I feel bad he's been given the lot he's been given. But there is something unstable and mentally unfit about him. And he's he's going to die tonight so everyone else can live. Hmm. And, in, you know, everyone else has blood on their hands to a degree. And that's, you're right, that's a very of this moment culturally frightening conversation that is happening in American cities all over the country, often in the South, often in the heartland where um, certain laws are, are different than in other States. And, and this is a more frequent outcome. Um, And I, it's interesting that that's your uninvited moment. (laughs) And I, so that's that's when you as an I'm just going to ask you. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm 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 reversing yeah. tables here. But that's when you as an audience member suddenly feel like a metaphorical idea has been thrust upon you and sort of it shakes you a bit. Is that what you mean by that? Yes. And the awareness of how how much it's not simply we're putting on Oklahoma today, but it is like look how urgently Oklahoma is about today because I think people always say when you do a revival why do the revival now so I that to me was was the reason and I I can imagine that kind of thing only comes out of rehearsal because maybe I don't know if Daniel Fish had certain themes he wanted to bring up or if it's like through the exploratory process of doing all this he's like oh my god these themes are so resonant yeah I think it was a combination of both um you know Daniel talks a lot about when he first took on the show, it was um, on students in Bard College in 2007 as a as a favor or as a, you know, a, in partnership with a professor there that he was very close with um, who said, I'd love to have you put uh, a show on my students. What show do you want? And, you know, what he likes to say is he was really interested in the idea of dinner theater and the idea of um, a community. Um, and, you know, he and he thought those two things sort of all fit together with the idea of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something he says, which I think is really brilliant, um, is that on each night of the show, he tells the cast, or he's not there literally each night of the show, but the idea is that the cast should walk out on stage as though it's a football game, as though no one knows how it's going to end. No one knows the result. Everyone has to do their best work, but that someone is going to die tonight. Hmm. But we don't know who. And wow. I think that's a really brilliant, yeah. ingenious way to direct any show, but specifically Oklahoma and this Oklahoma. And that's what I think delivers what you're grasping, what you're feeling and seeing at the end of the show with Judd and Curly and, and the town in that moment. Um, and I think it's, frankly, it you know, looping back to the theme here tonight, I think it's taking the nostalgic feel that maybe he had for Oklahoma by, you know, growing up knowing it and others have for the classic American R&H musical and subverting it. So it actually feels alive for tonight. 
take a quick break and talk to you about financial wellness. The term wellness is often associated with meditation retreats and skin treatments, but really wellness just means health and stability, whether that's physical, emotional, mental, or financial. IFWA, the Institute of Financial Wellness for the Arts, is a company that is specifically dedicated to the well-being of artists, and their team of financial coaches and advisors are trained to help artists manage their money and plan for their futures. Because many artists are paid project to project, they don't always think about long-term planning. There's also that long-standing myth that because artists live to create, it somehow means they're not thinking about their finances. The advisors and coaches at IFWA are passionate about art too. That's why they're devoted to giving artists the tools, vocabulary, resources, and know-how to navigate their careers with confidence and manage their money in smart ways. And with IFWA, you can work with an advisor at no cost. All categories of artists are welcome. Musicians, actors, playwrights, designers, dancers, directors, and on and on. Check out the IFWA to reserve a meeting with a financial coach and ensure that you're on track for a successful financial future. And now back to the podcast. If you're a producer who likes to disrupt nostalgia, or rather maybe you are drawn to shows where that, those elements are happening, but now you have to go get the rights to it, to get the ball rolling. And you have to convince people who might want to maintain the nostalgia to be not only okay with, but excited about a vision for disrupting nostalgia. Totally. How do you have that conversation? Well, I think I have that conversation, or I actually have had that conversation, <laughs> so I can tell you point blank how to have that conversation. I think I explain it in two ways. One, I say, I want to breathe another 75 years into this title or into this underlying material or into this IP. And the only way to do that is by reflecting the world and what's going on in the world through the work. Mm. So any sort of IP holder or investor or, you know, someone who who has to give of something for my vision um, has to understand that that's that's how work gets made and gets pushed into the future. It doesn't Mm -hmm. happen by treading water or standing in place or looking backwards. It happens by being present, responding to the presence and looking forward. So that's sort of the theme in how I just answer both your questions, how I raise money from investors, but also the theme in how I ask for rights. Um, you know, I don't feel young, but because <laughs> I'm tired all the time. <laughs> but 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 I know that in the Broadway producing landscape, I am young, right? Sure. So I think I have the benefit of saying this is how the industry is evolving. This is the direction work is going. Trust me, believe in me. I'm here for the long haul. I'm mm-hmm. not going anywhere. Together, we will keep the industry going forward and very much in existence and alive. Because I think people actually 
have that fear? Will Broadway survive with streaming and i and iPads right. and podcasts and you know twenty four seven on demand entertainment? And my answer to anyone who asks that or judges it is absolutely <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is going to survive. Is going to subsist. It is only going to become more of a commodity and more mm-hmm. successful because it's becoming the last place on earth where a very alive, of the moment, unique experience can happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm grateful to that and I recognize that. So I am going to continue to push it forward, to push the art form forward. And I, I'd like to think that both rights holders and investors also believe mm-hmm. in that piece and also want to push the art form forward art form forward and, 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 and recognize that evolution and risk-taking and subversion is of interest to a commercial audience. I think people want a reason to put their phone away, but they don't rely on their own (laughs) self-control to do so. I agree. I mean, it's why there's a new company out there called Yonder that literally Mm -hmm. gets paid to hand out pouches. I mean, it's actually, if you think about it, it's the most absurd thing in the world. But they're in business and they're flourishing. Yeah. It's like you have like a a package of Oreos and then you have another company that puts the Oreos in a (laughs) lockbox. Yeah. I mean, I have found that I have to sometimes put my phone in another room if I'm going to try and enjoy my time with someone or Mm -hmm. my own, my own presence. Yeah. So for um, an estate, though, like Rogers and Hammerstein, I imagine there's a certain kind of um, like protectiveness. So there might be like a push-pull wanting to breathe new life, as you said, which is a really compelling way to frame it. And I can imagine that would feel really invigorating, but also feeling nervous about the protectiveness because breathing new life could be a out there like balls to the wall idea of how to stage it. Yeah, there is absolutely a protectiveness. I mean, that's why these stewards of estates exist because the original authors and the original creators knew that there would come a time when they wouldn't be around or their family wouldn't be around and someone had to take control and authorize exploitations. Um, it's complicated. I, I won't lie. It, it, it's not, it was never simple for me on that project. Um, but it was the type of, um, evolution that happens with, with work and with hard work and with, um, and, and, and with real enthusiasm, which is what I had. And it's been an amazing, amazing partnership. I mean, they, the Rogers and Hammerstein organization has been supportive. They've been creative. They've been collaborative. They've, um, they've really paved the way, I think, for other estates to say, we get it. We believe that there are different ways of interpreting our work. And there are new audiences who want to appreciate the work through new interpretations. Why should we limit hmm. the possibilities? Hmm. I really want to hear your thoughts about adaptation because I think adaptations of all forms lend themselves to a kind of nostalgia because um, implicit in adaptation is a, is a memory of the original form, whatever the original was. Right. And you're doing something that harkens back and brings into a new space. 
And in thinking about it, I think there's sort of four categories in, in the theater realm of adaptations. And I want to do a semi-rapid fire questioning with Great. you. Let's do it. On these four types. So I think you got the adapting from a book, like a fun home, mm-hmm. like a graphic Wicked. Graphic novel. That's a graphic novel. Graphic novel. Thank you. Good correction. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, Wicked. Um, adapting from the screen. God, there's a thousand of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, mean Girls, Tootsie, uh, Frozen. Um, adapting from music, Jagged Little Pill, Tina, beautiful jukebox musicals mm-hmm. or things of that general category. And then I'm going to include revivals mm-hmm. because you're kind of adapting from the original theater totally. form. So all of these channel nostalgia, people come with memories of the original, and all of these have opportunities and pitfalls. Tell me your thoughts. Adaptations from books. I think they're exciting. I think um, you're talking theatrical, of course, yes, right? Theater, all theater. Yeah. I think they're exciting. Um, I think they're incredibly challenging because books are often unwieldy. Hmm. They're 300, 400, 500 pages long. They track several characters and several storylines. Um, and obviously in book form, there's a real intellectual aspect, um, that one that the audience needs to have because they're using their brain to comprehend and to understand and intellectual, um, an intellectuality is hard, I think harder to adapt than emotionality into the theatrical art form. Um, but I think they are ripe with opportunity because I think books are one of our, um, last bastions of complete creativity that mm. exist, and some of the most brilliant storytellers are luckily still novelists, and that's what we're getting. Adaptations from the screen. Adaptations from the screen almost never work, <laughs> and that's too bad because I think from a commercial producer standpoint, that's a very exciting place to try and breathe another avenue of life into a property. Um, but I think why there are pitfalls and why they often don't work is because people's expectations from the screen are very specific. They've seen it already. They've seen it not only in their head, like they may have from a book, but they've actually seen it physically. So suddenly what you're going to see on stage versus what you saw on screen may in fact feel like a failure or pale in comparison because you don't have the benefits of cinematic, um, perspective and 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 the magic of movies and all of that um so those give me great fear and i often try and shy away adaptations from music well you're asking a girl who opened jagged little pill this month (laughs) so i feel great about those i think when you can marry certain music that feels like it has characters within it or it feel like like it has a larger story within the lyrics and within the 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 individual songs um a lot more is possible um but like anything an adaptation from music is all about the book writer and mm. making sure that you have a thorough, intelligent, well-crafted story to be the scaffolding, back yeah. to that word, uh, for the music itself. And finally, revivals. I love revivals. I think, I mean, I, I that's just me. I am a classic American musical lover. I grew up on 
all the all all the classic American musicals from the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, I feel like I've seen all of them. I feel like I know the lyrics by heart to all of them. And I think many of them have the opportunity to take new form and shape. And so I think and I hope that I'll have many more of those in my future. I think you really hit on something interesting with the the, the screen, the movies and TV uh, as being a one that gives you pause. Because um, I think the other three revivals, music and books, they all involve a kind of like interior world because theater is the memory of the play you saw. It's not you don't have it with you, as you said, about screens. Um, there's always like this internal imagining of how the story is coming to life. And therefore, to make it theatrical is to enliven and expand it. And with, like you said, like with movies and TV shows brought to the stage, to make it theatrical is sometimes to shrink it because you can't be in 20 locations. You don't have the, you know, physically on a stage. Or a new idea of how it should exist, right? You have Mm -hmm. to sort of take that wonderful IP that that film or television show is and then put it put it inside a new container, flip it on its head, reinvent it by doing X, whatever that is. For all those who might care, I am developing three different shows that happen to have a film or TV. I'm ah, not going to give any of it away, okay. but it's taken me a very long time to figure them out mm. and to be attracted to them specifically because over the years, every time I've come near a TV or film idea, I haven't been able to figure it out. And so I've had to pass. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm very cautiously optimistic about that, what what I have ahead for me with these particular adaptations. Um, but um, I think it's, I think it's a challenge. Yeah. I've read that one of your specialties is mounting shows for less money or bringing them on the road or on tour and being able to pay your investors back quickly because you find ways to to sort of trim costs without trimming the quality. How do you maintain the integrity while also being very conscious that your investors need to get paid back? Um, I think it's just about not giving in to the first answer. I think it's, you know, I've never been one who says, um, okay, that's how it's done before. I guess we'll do it again that way. So I think looking outside the box, being really rigorous about every aspect that goes into the production, taking on several jobs within my office, uh, be my own marketing director, uh, general manage in-house, be the financial and accounting department inside our office. You know, it's about rolling up the sleeves, being more DIY, and really interrogating the norms of how to mount a show. Mm. I remember a few years ago, I interviewed Hal Prince, and he told me that in The Pajama Game, which I think was the first show he produced, he just didn't have a lot of money. And so he went to a clothing factory and used their sewing machines and their pajama fabrics and put them on stage as like product placement. <laughs> Isn't that that's awesome? pretty brilliant. And they gave him advertising. That's pretty brilliant. I was like, God, that's resourceful. Um, but it sounds like you're doing a contemporary kind of version. Like you're finding all the ways to, um, to sort of 
make the work happen. He also was his own stage manager, Hal Prince. Um, like you sort of wear a lot of hats and therefore you, the financial mountain is not quite as high. Yeah, I guess that's fair to say. Um, I have a final question for you, which I've been wondering for a while. On the marketing materials for Jagged Little Pill, what's the hand? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will answer you, but I'm going to throw it back. What do you think the hand is? I mean, I think it's hand in my pocket, the song, um, as like a direct reference to one of the most famous songs she wrote. That was my first thought. Um, and I guess on a more like metaphoric level, um, like maybe reaching out for connection. Yeah. Yeah. I think when marketing materials are the most successful, it's because they're operating on a metaphorical level mm -hmm. and they're open to many interpretations. And I would say all of that is right. And I would say, I would add to that, I guess, is that um, it's, it's human. Hands are human. Hands are, hands are what we put forward when we meet someone. Hands are what we use to grab onto someone we love. Hands are what we use to push something away. So I think that's that's all built into why that's our kind of hero image and symbol. Um, I also think right now, um, hands seem to be a big piece of um, society in terms of activism and in terms huh, of yeah. um, community. If you look at a lot of the visuals of um, youth today and, um, and, and, and youth culture, you see the symbol of hands and things written on hands um, to be a way that people are expressing emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was another reason why it felt like a nice match for our storytelling. I actually was thinking that Jagged Little Pill could be the kind of show where people come to it, the people who come like more than once, they come like in a certain dress. And I was looking around, like hoping to see all kinds of sweaters on backwards. And I, I, I really, maybe because it was winter, I don't know, but that seems like a, a real opportunity. Give us some time. We yeah. just opened. <laughs> Eva, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Lonnie. It was really nice talking to you. Likewise. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time. <laughs>